0: This show is brought to you by CIUT Studios. Find out how to volunteer, advertise, or donate at CIUT.fm.
1: Openly autistic socialist, and he was elected in a landslide victory as Upper Canada uh, District School Board Trustee for Stormont Glengarry Very... F- very conservative part of our province, by the way. Um, Curtis uh, has spent his life in the nonprofit housing sector. Uh, started in his late teens, and has managed social housing communities across the province. Curtis, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show.
2: Well, thank you very much, Sherry. I really appreciate it.
1: You, you're sounding um, you're sounding a little like down. Can you can you up the volume okay. there? Okay, sorry about that. I don't know if you can hear me a little bit better. I can hear you better. Now, um, one of the things I'm going to be talking to Alex about is homelessness. It's a crisis. Mm -hmm. We have three people dying a week on the streets in Toronto. I mean, this should be a national crisis. Um, Somehow we just kind of blink and go on in the city now. Um, So we're going to have a number of mayoral candidates on the show in the upcoming weeks. Uh, and last week we had uh, Gil Penalosa on, and he put forward some ideas like laneway housing, etc. And you had some good words about those kinds of solutions. Maybe just share them with us.
2: Well, you know what? Um, providing funding for laneway housing initiatives very much it's seeing is the same mentality as providing public-private partnerships, uh, with public money going to, pro- to fund private hospitals. It's very similar to that, and basically you were giving public money to um, landlords who, or individuals who own homes who are private investors, private developers, obviously, uh, in most cases at a much smaller scale, uh, but that public money does not always um, mean uh, sustainable, affordable housing in the long term. Um, and that's one of the things. In some municipalities, um, I look at the municipality of the city of Kingston, which is not terribly far from where I am in in eastern Ontario. And that is a program that existed uh, for quite some time there. And um, you know, they still have a really, really bad housing crisis, and they lost quite a few units. Um, you know, when uh, property values really, really soared during the pandemic, a lot of individuals who had gotten these loans uh and uh tax free uh money from the municipality to build these secondary suites and laneway homes and and uh items like that. They ended up having to um they they've ended up selling their properties or just really finding loopholes to really jack up the rent. So that is one of the really, really uh big worries that I have about things like this. And I, I look at just the absolute need for core affordable, publicly owned uh, affordable housing at deeply deeply subsidized rates that is really 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 what we need and we need to be making sure that every penny possible goes towards that and especially when it's delivered through the cooperative housing model that is an amazing model but the key 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 thing is um public or cooperative ownership uh and obviously uh, those deep deep rent subs so deep rent subsidies i can't stress that enough
1: Uh, Speaking to Curtis Jordan here about housing in this province um, from deep in the heart of conservative rural Ontario. Uh, Curtis, lovely to hear from you as always. So uh, what about like paving over the green belt? Just got to get that in there. Is that, uh, you know, the conservative government here is saying this is going to provide housing and we desperately need housing. Everybody says we desperately need housing. This is one solution. What do you think?
2: Oh my gosh. Well, you know what, this idea of paving over the green belt for just more private developers getting richer and richer and richer. You know, there's not a single unit of affordable housing is being is planned to be built on this green belt. I mean, you know what? Like, I mean, it's a terrible idea, but at least it, Ford could have at least proposed for, you know, a few billion dollars of affordable, like, deeply subsidized housing. To be built in with this. And I mean, he didn't even propose that. I think it's one of the dumber ideas that I've heard uh, within, my, uh, within my career, uh, within the nonprofit housing sector. And I've seen a lot of really uh, not so great ideas come forth. Uh, and this definitely is one of them.
1: So, uh, from your background and and thinking about the city of Toronto now, and I know you've you've uh-huh. lived here too, um, and mayoral candidates, what what should they be doing? What what should they be looking at in terms of the housing and homelessness file?
2: Definitely. Well, you know what? I, I I spent uh, years living in the Socialist Republic of Parkdale High Park, and you were my MPP, and those, you know, in the words of Edith Bunker, those were the days. And, um, you know, but uh, I, I one, one of the things that uh, mayoral candidates really need to be looking at in across the city of Toronto is looking at how to use municipally owned land um, and municipally owned facilities um, to facilitate the rapid development of affordable housing and um, looking at alternatives like modular homes. I mean, in this province and in neighbouring jurisdictions such as uh, Michigan and Ohio, um, we have a plethora of amazing modular home builders and looking at um, y- using that, even using facilities like um, municipally operated uh, parkland and other types of facilities uh, to uh, operate, um, you know, uh, communities that are modular built. They can be built very, very quickly to address the immediate problem while the larger problem is the, being addressed with uh, the erection of obviously uh, high rise type development, as well as that missing middle, which uh, I I've heard quite a bit spoken about that missing middle of, you know, four story, uh, four story type buildings. And that is something that we really, really need to see. And I'm actually quite inspired by some modular built, uh, four story buildings that I've seen as well. And again, there's, there's um, modular home builders. across the province as well as the neighboring jurisdictions that uh, that build these as well. And I mean, it could be like we could literally resolve this issue. And, and this is one issue we could resolve quite quickly. Thank you.
1: Uh, yeah. So, Curtis, last question. And uh, uh, there's a lot of discussion about what affordable housing is. Um, There was a development that went up not far from here where we're sitting in the radio station that was called, Mm -hmm. uh, we're calling affordable housing bachelor apartment condos. Um, uh, So what does it mean to be deeply affordable? Because, you know, that's a A deeply
2: affordable housing basically means that the rent is no more than 30 percent of the income, which of, of the individual applying. So that could mean that um, the rents are basically a variable. So what that means is uh, these units come with a subsidy attached, an indefinite subsidy attached, so that um, the, uh, the amount that the tenant is paying is never more than 30% of their income. So say, for instance, if um, you have a studio unit, it's being rented to a single adult on ODSP. Well, for instance, the maximum shelter allowance for that single adult is within the $400 to $450 range. That would be the absolute, absolute maximum that would be used uh, for the rent. And then, um, and then the remainder would come from a subsidy allowance from the municipality or another level of government. Um, say, for instance, someone's earning a minimum wage, they're earning $2,000 a month. Well, then 30% of $2,000 a month would be the absolute maximum that that person would be paying for rent. And then what you do is you look at regional rates for utilities that you carve out of that a little bit, and sometimes that lowers the rent a little bit. Um, But basically, that is the deeply affordable housing, not $1,600 for a studio apartment. I I, I don't know many people who would ever consider that affordable, uh, and that is what uh, a lot of the new "quote-unquote" affordable housing is, and that's just—you know—it's even difficult to find people uh, who can actually qualify for that. Like in 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 my work, I work with uh, in a nonprofit housing provider, and we have those types of units as well, where uh, they're market rate, and we're required to um, uh, market rate affordable housing for those units. We're required to look for people who uh, have an income that uh, is thirty percent of that sixteen hundred a month. Well, the people who are applying for our units, I mean, a lot of people, we're in an economy where not a lot of people are making three times 1600 a month uh, who are, you know, applying for affordable housing. And it's very, very difficult um, once you find that person. And that is a unit that's going to someone who can clearly easily afford something in the private market. And you're driving to work every day past people who desperately could make, take advantage of that unit like it's just absolutely heartbreaking it's frankly absolutely abuse of taxpayers precious money
1: thanks so much and obviously we're not going to get a lot of reaction uh, from the developers uh to build that kind of property or to landlords uh either um thanks curtis uh i know My you're gonna be sure back is. on the show uh, sometime later this month yeah. so uh thanks so much for what you do and uh, thank talk you, later Sherry. okay fabulous
2: thank bye-bye. you bye-bye thank you
1: um, so you're listening to the Radical Reference Show. We're back here live in studio, which is so exciting, and with Alex Grant. So, Alex, you just heard some thoughts about what is affordable housing. Um, it used to be about 25%, I remember back in the day, but if it's 20 to 30%, I mean, now uh, what, one bedroom in Toronto goes for like $2,700 or something insane? Oh, it's totally crazy. And, I actually,
3: and, and it's totally linked to homelessness as well. Right, so you've got working class people who are drowning in their in their rent payments, so it's like fifty percent and more of their take-home. But then people, some people just cannot afford that and get forced out on the streets. And it is a you know it's the social murder of capitalism. One homeless person dies every two days in Toronto. That that's the effect of uh, a billionaire landlords, and millionaire landlords profiteering off uh, using an essential human need as a speculative investment, right? So so that needs to change. And I think Curtis raised some uh, excellent issues that said a lot of the, when various politicians have housing plans, what does it amount to is giving more money to landlords, giving incentives to landlords, giving tax breaks to landlords. Uh, it's always landlords, 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 and nothing from the perspective of renters. So anything... That is, yeah, it is that kind of uh, uh, incentive to landlords doesn't work, hasn't worked, makes things worse, and 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 as Curtis said, absolutely public co-op, public co-op. If it's not public and not co-op, you're never you're never gonna get down to you know uh, rent gear to income or anything like that. It has to be public or co-op to to really do that and so the left needs to be actually get away from the language of just affordable because affordable becomes a front to hands out to landlords and we've got to be swift shift our language like Curtis said public co-op public social housing.
1: Uh, speaking here on uh, left left or leftist today uh, the Radical Reverend show I mean I you know, uh, let's just even use the figure of three deaths a week on our streets from homelessness. This is outrageous. Mm-hmm. This is absolutely morally and ethically repulsive. I mean, I can't believe that this is not the headline in every mainstream media. I mean, I, if three people, I think I read somewhere, somebody had posted, you know, if, if three hockey players died a week, or, you know, pick a profession, died a week on, on the streets of Toronto, um, you know, the army would be out. Let's put it that way. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, this is insane. Uh, and uh, And somehow... We're okay with it. We're okay stepping over the bodies in the city, which is outrageous. Um, I can't remember, and I've been alive a long time in this town, I can't remember the last major public build. Um, but then when I say that, municipally, people look at Region Park. Um, what do you think about the Region Park redevelopment? Well, well it looks like it's another profiteering exercise. And, and while
3: they're building things, I, I think, yeah, they move people out. But how many of them to actually get to move back in later? And so it isn't being done for the benefit of the poor people who, who used to live in what, the, frankly, was low-quality housing there. Uh, so... I, I walk through that neighborhood on the way to work every day, and uh, uh, it's very nice new build, but I seriously doubt many uh, of the uh, low-income people are be able to go back in there, and it's, again, another speculative investment with government money. So this is sponsored capitalism,
1: sponsored profiteering, without actually solving the housing crisis. I mean, I think the last real build of public co-op had some market in it too, was St. Lawrence Market, and that was in the 70s. That was kind of the gold standard back then. And since then, really, and even co-ops, you know, how many new co-ops are being? Uh, oh, I mean, none. None. Yeah, they yeah. haven't been built for ages. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's that as well. Um, the region Park uh, redevelopment. I always think. Imagine if they went into Rosedale or Forest Hill mm-hmm. and decided that they were going to, you know, allow, you know, nonprofit, deeply affordable, you know, people on social assistance to live in Rosedale and and kind of redevelop some of those big mansions. And I mean, I, it, it would be inconceivable, of course, yeah. right, in this town.
3: I, actually, maybe I could bring up a little bit of social history. So uh, my the organization I'm part of, uh, so Fight Back, International Marxist Tendency, back in the 80s in Britain, uh, we were called militant. And, uh, and we were leading Liverpool Labour Council. So it was a socialist council in Liverpool in the 1980s. And it built... 5,000 public homes, not houses, homes, nice working-class homes that people were proud to live in. And, and, that's what, and that was campaigning against the Thatcher government, getting money out of the Thatcher government. So that can be done if there is proper political socialist organising
1: hmm So um, maybe that can, can, maybe we can segue from there into talking about the Merrill race. Um, there's a whole lot of candidates, as there always is. It's a bit of a circus. Uh, and uh, there there was some real concern about people who are at the progressive end of things, um, led by, we were talking about this earlier, Josh Matlow, who's just announced that he's running, uh, who's as progressive as it gets in the slate, uh, you know, but now as kind of you know, basically dividing dividing the progressives. But now we've got all these conservatives that are announced too. We've got Anthony Fury. We've got, you know, Saunders, former police chief, uh, you know, Bradford. So we've got conservatives also dividing the vote. Um, thoughts? Thoughts about it?
3: Absolutely. Well, first of all, good riddance to John Tory. Uh, very glad he's gone. Um, uh, although I think the reason he should have gone was... Uh, extra $50 million for the cops and for the housing crisis. And uh, so there, there are many more important issues of why he should have gone. But those crises still continue, uh, housing, vitally, police. And it looks. And I think it's great that there's a divided vote, vote on the right. Saunders, ex-police chief, he's clearly coming in on a law, law and order. The right-wing media are probably going to try and whip everybody up. Oh, we're so very afraid. We need cops. We need cops. I don't think that's going to fly, to be honest. Uh, I I think like when, so there's wave of violence on the TTC and they tried putting more cops on the TTC. And I think the overwhelming opinion amongst the population was like, this doesn't solve the problem. This just harasses uh, uh, people of color and uh, and homeless people. I, I, I think. Overwhelmingly, people see it's systemic. It's part of the, the crisis of the system itself. So I'm not sure a law and order candidate and those right wing candidates will win. So any candidate who said they they will move that extra 50 million from the cops to housing and to homelessness, I think, would be very popular. Uh, I think I, I'm not an expert on Matlow. Uh, you, you told me before that uh, he's a sort of a left liberal or or something. Uh, I think his platform. He said he's going to increase property taxes by some sixty bucks to fund an infrastructure. I think it's plan.
1: sixty-seven to be exact. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, that's not
3: going to set the world on fire, and and also it's probably not the the best strategy uh, at starting with tax increases. I think you need to campaign on what people need in terms of housing, TTC. Uh, End of corporate control and demand money from the province and the feds to achieve that, and rather than emphasise property taxes because working class people don't want to be taxed, Uh, but uh, we'll see. I I think he might have actually a decent chance if there is a, a split vote on the right.
1: Yeah, I mean, Josh has been fairly forward-thinking and voting on on City Council, so there's there's hope there, and I'm hoping that he will be on the show in at some point in April, um, along with others, uh, so we can hear from them directly. Uh, but I mean, this city, one of the one of the crises of the city, and I'm kind of moving back and forth from homelessness, but one of the crises is the. You know, and one thing that Curtis perhaps didn't mention was I see so many commercial properties now that are boarded up, that are just sitting there empty. Um, And Tory, for the longest time, was being pushed to have a vacancy tax on those places because I know for a fact that many folk have invested in them in a speculative basis. Mm -hmm. And why fix them up? Why do anything? Why not just hold on to them? Because the property values are going to go up by, you know, they've gone down a little bit now, but if they're going up by five to ten percent a year, they're doing better than the stock market probably. You just sit and hold on to them, let them crumble into the ground until the developer wants to come along and build condos, and um, then you sell them. Uh, and but the the tax is so minuscule that it's just a cost of doing business now, depending on property values. So there there is a there is you know something that could be developed into you know, affordable housing with little. I mean, they should be expropriated. Why aren't we expropriating, you know, clearly uh, properties that are, you know, crumbling into the ground that have become makeshift, that are dangerous? Absolutely. Well, there's something like uh, 65,000
3: empty condos in the city, and any one night there's 10,000 people sleeping on the streets. So uh, that's, that's simple math. That's very simple math. Uh, actually, even in terms of commercial uh, properties – that not only is there not an empty unit tax, they actually get a tax break on an empty unit. So it's, it's, a, it's a lost profit that they can lower their uh, 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 property taxes. So it's uh, inexplicable. Rents could be significantly lower uh, fr- from, from just these minor things.
1: Yeah, um, you know, Main Street, not Bay Street um, phenomena, because I've talked to many small business owners, you know, in my area and others who um, whose rents went up during COVID when they yep. could barely keep the doors open. I mean, this is insane. Um, and clearly, they don't care if they leave um, and they don't care if they sit empty because uh, they will still get that write off, as you say. Uh, TTC, let's keep talking about the city for a minute and the mayoral. What should any mayoral candidate be doing about our transit system? Uh, Again, what they can, because, uh, and to to your point about, you know, the first thing you should do is knock on the door at Queen's Park. Um, I think people thought Tory was going to be able to do that since he's a Tory. Uh, And he was presumably friends with Doug Ford. And and I think the hope was they'll get more money out of them. Instead, in fact, the city got less.
3: You need a mass movement. You absolutely need a mass movement. And the, uh, the city left, the Labour Council, the trade unions need to... Get behind this for yes. TTC is the least government-funded transit system uh, in North America, and that's unacceptable. You've got lower service and higher fares. They've just announced another increase in the fares. That's a tax on working-class people. Uh, I I may add that uh, the they're cracking down on fare evasion, and again, here's a class attack. Uh, what's the what's the fee for fare evasion? $400. What's the fee for a parking violation? $40. There, because the capitalists don't get, get transit, they drive. So that's class justice for you. And so that we need to demand the money from the higher levels of government. It can't be just done by increasing the fare box and it can't be done by decreasing service.
1: Uh, which at one point was forthcoming and hasn't been. Uh, I mean, clearly it seems to be, even though Doug Ford lives in Etobicoke, lives in Toronto, that there's this kind of anti-Toronto move um, in the Conservative cabinet provincially. And uh, this sort of, you know, all those lefties in Toronto that voted NDP, you know, here we're not going to give you money. Um, and, and this has been kind of working it's, itself out in, in many ways. Uh, so you know in the interim before you know the revolution <laughs> 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 um, what do we like how like, if that money is not forthcoming um, one of the things Gill said last week um, was that there 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 is money there in the city it's just that we're not you know the the city hasn't been using it i'm I'm hearing conflicting things about that some will say well we barely cover the cost of what we need to do right now others are saying well you know there there are these little, um, places that we could get more money for, for example. I mean, where does the money come from if it's not going to come from the province, which looks like it's going to be the case for at least another few years?
3: Well, well I, I, I would still say you've got a campaign for it. I, I, I don't... I seriously doubt there are... Like, sure, there might be small taxes and things that will get some revenue, but really that's not going to solve the systemic problem. And with regard to the sort of uh, rural anti-Toronto attitudes... Well, there's a perfect issue in terms of paving over the Greenbelt of building that solidarity between the city and the countryside because and, and cause everybody realises that paving over the Greenbelt does not benefit uh, people in the country and it doesn't benefit people in the city either. And so we need to build a movement that really builds that cross-solidarity and so we'll fight for TTC, but we, hey, we should also fight for good transit commuting uh, lines, a uh, decent public transit across the province, it all comes together.
1: Yeah, speaking here to Alex Grant of Fight Back, uh, editor of Fight Back magazine, and you are listening to the Radical Reverend Show. I want to just give a, a shout out to our wonderful techs that show up every week. And you know that the show is run completely by volunteers, and that is Jasmine and Riley. Thank you so much on the other side of the glass uh, for making this show happen each and every week, and live, and thank you out there in listener land. To love to hear from you, always respond if you email me. Uh, you can find me um, uh, ten ways to Sundays um, on all social media. So do get in touch if you've got ideas for shows or just ideas and comments generally. Love to hear from you. Um, uh, one last thing ab- about um, the, the Toronto <laughs> uh, venue, uh, Ontario Place, um, and, and I this you know this wasn't on the list of things, but I mean it just dawned on me that it's not far from where I live. And um, this was put into place by Bill Davis, and the idea, conservative premier, um, that this would be a place that all Toronto could see, and that would be a highlight. And it's got that beautiful big, you know, dome, and um, and it's got beaches, and it had a little, you know, IMAX theater at one point and stuff. It was a place to go for families. Uh, That is going to be sold by Doug Ford, and that's processed to a private spa. Uh, And it's going to be sold for using our dollars as incentive, by the way, at least um, uh, millions of our dollars, not to mention the cost of the land itself. Uh, and, uh, and of course, they're going to charge for admission so it's no longer public. So this is a, a complete gift to the private sector, not to mention that I just heard that 850 trees are going to be taken down to make way for this private spa. Um, so here's an issue, and, of course, there's some people are, are getting excited about it and they're generating some buzz about it, but it's almost like, I mean, and it is. They have a, a majority government. They can do whatever they want at Queen's Park, and... Um, On just very local issues like that, where there's a lot of public sentiment, what do we do to stop it?
3: Yeah, well, well, it's horrendous uh, privatization of public land. And I I quite like spas, to be honest, Uh, but I I think they should be available to everybody. Uh, Actually, it makes me think about it. Uh, My mum's Hungarian. uh, And in Budapest, in one of the major parks, there is a huge public spa. Hot water. Yeah, it's beautiful. And you get in for a couple of bucks right? Uh, it can be done. And there's public transit all goes there. Why don't we do that? Okay. Or, or or build a beautiful natural environment. But again, yes, this should be a mayoral issue. This would absolutely be a mayoral issue. If you build enough of a movement, like, we don't live in a fascist society yet. So public opinion does matter. Movement does matter. And, uh, and you can push back. And, and I think People are looking at this privatization of public lands in a very concerned way.
1: Talking about privatization, of course, the major issue with that, that uh, people are concerned about, and this is provincial, is healthcare and the privatization of our healthcare system, which is moving at a rapid speed. Uh, Pace—it's always been there. Um, but for example, I mean, the most common complaint I hear from folk is, for example, cataract surgery. Um, where if you want, if you have cataracts and you want them dealt with so you can see, which is something you really want to be able to do, um, you can get that done five, six thousand dollars, probably in a week or so. If you want it done under OHIP, you will wait, six, you know, three to six months. At which point you will, and you're not going to be seeing, you're not, you're going to be, you know, could be blind in the interim. Um, this seems to pass muster with the Canada Health Act. Like, I don't understand why that's even legal, um, but it seems it's been going on for quite a while now. I mean, we know, of course, that dentistry is privatized. Um, we know that most mental health, quite frankly, is privatized because try to find a psychiatrist without a six-month wait list or any mental health professional that's going to see you for free. Um, so, so that's been ongoing. But now we're actually privatizing parts of our hospitals we're using and relying on private um, agencies for nursing staff. Uh, and, and again, this is huge. This is, this is something that Canadians voted Tommy Douglas as the greatest Canadian ever mm-hmm. about because he introduced Medicare in Saskatchewan, which eventually became Canada coast-to-coast-to-coast to coast to coast wide. What can we do about this? Well, it's scandalous. It's
3: unpopular. You poll the populations. Are, are they in favor of this privatization? No. People are opposed to it, but right-wing governments and the liberal federal government are closing their eyes to it, letting it happen. And uh, it was there was a, a massive outpouring of anger when this was first announced. It was I was really disappointed that the unions, especially the health unions, didn't organise a demonstration. Like all it would have needed was a single healthcare local to declare a de- demonstration on Queen's Park and there will be 10 or 20,000 people on the lawns of Queen's Park within a week's notice uh, announcing this. But sadly, it didn't happen. And so you do have to organise. But also, you've got the federal NDP. They were uh, Jagmeet Singh got up and said he was opposed to uh, Trudeau not enforcing the Canada Health Act. But then what did he do? He's propping up the government right now. He could threaten to bring them down right now over this issue over the Canada Health Act and healthcare privatization which is popular the NDP's position is popular there be a very a very clear uh, issue to bring down the government on and show the, the liberal hypocrisy and the NDP okay they say things but then they do nothing so we we need better leadership of our unions we need better leadership
1: of the NDP um, I, I will interject here and say I, I have great hopes for Marit Stiles at the provincial level. She's been on the show. So here's hoping there. Um, uh, for sure, I mean, this is a kind of an interesting ish- issue federally and provincially because um, Pierre poliev. Um, came out and started talking about how the the federal government should override the provinces in terms of licensing doctors and healthcare professionals. So foreign trained professionals should be able to come here and practice. And he was saying the government should do this. Um, And so I tweeted out that I, in a sense, agree with him that the federal government should override the province and that uh, they should override Doug Ford privatizing uh, Ontario's healthcare system. Um, Not, I'm I'm sure, what Pierre (laughs) Poiliev had in mind uh, Uh, but again, um, the federal government does have some control over this. They have control over that transfer of huge amounts of money. They could have put strings attached to that. They did not, so um, shame, shame, Trudeau. I don't think it's going to help him in the polls, but the scary thing is, and I know how politics works. used to work in the field, Um, that they're looking at the polling too, and they're seeing that if they called an election, that the Conservatives actually have the edge, and that's why they're not doing it. What do we do about that? That's the reality of the political game in this country. Like it or
3: do you mean the liberals or the NDP? The NDP. Well, the thing is, if the NDP had decent socialist policies to campaign on, they'd do a lot better. The the problem is, is it's so watered down. Then yeah, Polyev's going to win because he's the only one saying something. He's the only one who's actually against the system when the system is failing, and he's got. And actually, he sometimes does these populist. Things that even sound left. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah.
1: Have knots or have yachts. I love exactly. that Exactly. It's
3: a great line. Uh, recently, ca- he was railing against the pharmaceutical industry. Mm, saw uh, that. He was going to sue them. Yeah. Yes. And and of course, it's it's a joke. He's not. Go- that's going to be in the courts for, forever. So he gets to pretend he's anti-corporate without actually being anti-corporate. But he's he talks about the working class way, way more than the NDP does. So. You've got to actually adopt socialist policies. You've actually got to campaign. And then these things would be popular. The Fraser Institute, of all people, put out a poll recently. Very showed, right-wing institute. Just yes, yeah, very up. right-wing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said that socialism was incredibly popular, especially amongst the youth, that sort of over 50% of the youth support socialism. And actually in Canada, over a million young people under the age of 35 support communism. Right, there is left-wing sentiment. sentiment, Just nobody. There's no organised expression for socialism or communism beyond small
1: left-wing groups like myself. So, speaking here with Alex Grant um, on the left-left-leftist show that we do once a month. Um, uh, and he is the editor of Fight Back magazine and yours truly here, Sherry DeNovo on the Radical Reverend Show. That's what you're listening to. Um, and, uh, again, thanks to all the volunteers like Jasmine and Riley who make this station fly and function. Uh, so let's move on now. We've talked about the Merrill race. We've talked about um, you know homelessness and what's happening in the city and maybe the province um let's let's go a little bit farther afield the failure of banks this is like reminiscent of the 20s you know or it's like yep. 1929 or 2008 maybe um to be more recent about it but i mean when you talk about runs on banks that's that's really out there you know what's going on right so the latest
3: one is well, silicon valley bank there's a run in- Uh, There was a run on that. Everybody was pulling out their deposits and the American government had to come in and bail them out. And then you had uh, Credit Suisse, uh, which is the second biggest bank in Switzerland. It's basically like the Toronto Dominion Bank of Switzerland. And uh, they got a a huge bailout, uh, government-mediated bailout. Now, I'm reminded at the beginning of the year, there's always the that the CEO uh, pay uh, statistics. So that C- CEOs are paid like 250 or 300 times the, the wage of an average worker. And then the right wing will come into, oh yes, but they're, they're very special people who are experts and uh, without that, the entire economy would fail. Well, these are the so- so-called experts, the captains of industry that are destroying the economy. And actually they're not just destroying it, they are explicitly corrupt. Silicon Valley Bank, they took them, the, the CEOs, the, the executive, took their money and ran a week before uh, the crash. Uh, Credit Suisse, they assisted tax evasion. They had a $50 million backhander in Mozambique. They were complicit in uh, Bulgarian drug ring money laundering. This is capitalism. Capitalism is corrupt. There's no good capitalism. And, and now they're being stuck with the in the interest rates going up for inflation, that uh, all of their bonds are now junk bonds, and whereas all of these things, if a worker tried to if worker stole a thousand dollars, then you get put in jail, but if a banker sold, so steals millions or billions of dollars, they get a huge bailout and bonuses. Right? There's one rule for the rich. There's another for working class folks. So th- this is.
1: Yeah, this is going to have major repercussions and, and, and there could be more banks going under. I, I think back to the 2008 crisis and um, the response of the Obama administration, which I think paved the way for Trump, actually, which was to bail out Wall Street and not Main Street, to b- bail out the banks and the huge companies and yet let you know millions of Americans lose their homes yep. and, and end up on the streets. Um, uh, now, in Canada, of course, response to what we see globally with the failure of banks, and especially south of the border, is but we have way better regulations. Regulations, by the way, just have to say that the NDP fought for, <laughs> which we wouldn't have if it was left up the Conservatives way back in the day. Um, but, um, you know, so so maybe we shouldn't be running on our banks, but... Still, our banks, and we've just heard this um, the show before, this show, Radical Reverend is Democracy Now!, and they talked about the investment of uh, banks, American banks, in the fossil fuel expansion industry. This is not investing in fossil fuels as it exists. This is investing in their expansion. And I know that our banks are Absolutely involved in that. There is no question about that. So that's an environmental catastrophe. Um, we're also in, involved in the Caribbean, and we are also involved. Um, uh, and I, I just want to say, you know, we're going to be talking to Gary Kinsman in, in a few minutes about queer politics, but um, that to see banks marching in pride with their pride flags flying, and then to know that they are active in the Caribbean, that places like Jamaica, where there are still laws against homosexuality, I say, don't march in pride if you're going to not keep those pride flags flying everywhere that you do business. So, um, so thoughts about the Canadian banking system?
3: Any? Well, you never know. You never know. They will tell you it's great until it really, really obviously isn't. Uh, actually, it's part of the system. They have to lie. They have to tell you it's great. So so you don't actually know. Uh, but... This all comes back to the generalised crisis of capitalism, that how did they get out of the 2008-2009 crisis? Well, they printed loads of money and got loads of debt, and then eventually that causes inflation. And so how are they dealing with inflation? By raising interest rates. But, and then what triggered off the, the run on SVB was that raised interest rates. There's more, there's, they're preparing a recession, they're trying to deflate the bubble, but the bubble bursts. And they can't cope with the consequences. And now these bailouts themselves are inflationary. So they might get the inflation. They might not solve the inflation, but they're, they're still going to get a recession and banks go under. It all comes back to the crisis of overproduction and the crisis of capitalism. That it, no matter what you do, it comes out one way or another, whether it's inflation, whether it's recession. whether it. And at the end, end of the day, they're going to try and make working class people pay through it with austerity and layoffs. And just the whole system's got to go.
1: Um, one uh, one thing that hits close to home here in terms of that crisis. Is um, and we have our own billionaires, of course, in case people forget. Galen Weston uh, read somewhere he's the 17th wealthiest person in the world, um, many billions under uh, that belt. Uh, so, And laws not just Loblaws alone, of course, you know, equal opportunity uh, offender here at Radical Reference Station, many of the large groceries, chains. Um So we just heard today, it was breaking news, um, that food prices are almost double the inflation rate, 10.6%. Yep. Um, and so that affects... Uh, everyone, but it particularly affects those who are, are on a very strict budget and who are at the lower end of the income spectrum. So people are just not eating as much or just not eating as healthily or just, you know, curbing what they spend at the grocery stores. And yet the profits are still there. The profits have been phenomenal for said companies, uh, uh, particularly during COVID, which is shocking, but true. Um, so we have that right here at home. And uh, just so we don't f- Forget that; um, it's very, very important. Um, so, so banking. Um, uh, uh, Trump's supposed to be arrested today, or so he says. Do you think it's going to happen? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I actually, I, I, I am not. Actually, I'm
3: going to say something that might be perceived as in defence of Trump, uh, <laughs> just just to be provocative. That I. I, I if he's arrested, I will uh, laugh as much as everybody else. But I think it does actually also show the political nature of justice that I, why is he being arrested now? It is a political decision. It is a political decision. There, there is no neutral justice uh, because I and the things he's being arrested for. Well, it's, you know, quite convoluted. Uh, I think it's a perjury or something like that or a tax evasion or. Or campaign finance. But it it just just does show that the legal system isn't neutral. I'm not going to cry for Trump. I'd be quite amused if he gets arrested, see what happened. But it tells you something about the system as a whole. Uh,
1: I think we should name it Stormy Tuesday in case he, he, he does after Stormy Daniels. I just have to give her a shout out. <laughs> this poor woman who's been reviled and dragged through the courts and put her, her whole life on the line. It actually might be the you know, it's a woman telling the truth might actually be the, the, the final straw that brings Trump down. But uh, at any rate, um, we, we stand and wait. It will be interesting to see what happens there. Um, we've just got a few minutes left before I want to get Gary Kinsman on the phone. Uh, uh, but Chinese interference, big news in Ottawa. What's happening there?
3: Well, the unnamed agents from CSIS are giving interviews to the Global Mail and Global News. Talking about Chinese interference, and is China interfering in uh, Canadian democracy? Probably. Uh, how much? What are they actually doing? Hard to tell. By by the sound of it, it's probably bussing Chinese grannies to the polls. That's what it probably is, or maybe some foreign students in nomination contests. I uh, to hear that CSIS, Canadian Secret Service allied with the CIA is complaining about bussing grannies to the polls and I'm reminded about western interference in Cuba western interference in Venezuela Juan Guaidó the the fake Venezuelan president uh, the interference in Peru coup, Honduran coup, again and again and again Haiti, (laughs) Haitian yes Haitian coup, millions and billions of dollars of interfering in other people's countries not to mention illegal invasions like uh, iraq and afghanistan right so don't make me laugh don't make me laugh about foreign interference although i I will have to
1: intervene there and say yes but you know having worked with a lot of tibetans tibetans Pretty much oh, get yeah. the run, run around, uh, you know. Yes. I mean, the, the I mean, the Chinese have troll factories like everybody else. I mean, I, yep. and and that is something that's happening. It's not just Russia. It's not just China. It's the U.S. It's everybody has, you know, ha, yeah, are very active on social media. Let's just put it that way, trying to um, trying to influence our our voting and our thought process, but. But uh, shout out to the Tibetan community—they've really been under the gun, um, mm-hmm. and that is going on. But, but it, to me, what's weird is that this has always been going on, right? I mean, whatever oh, yeah. there, it, whatever. I mean, and and in terms of directly funding candidates too. I mean, I this was a scandal, back you know ten minutes ago, like. Uh, sorry, 10 years ago when I was in, it feels like 10 minutes, um, when I was in elected office. You know, I think we had a, a cabinet minister in the liberal government, Chan was his last name, who had nailed it a whole article on the money that maybe he had received and these allegations that had not been disproved. Um, but it's interesting, again, for political reasons that we're talking about it now. Um, uh, so, so I mean, that to me is is the kind of interesting. It's it's why now? Why do you think it's now? Why is this hitting
3: Well, yeah, well, uh, there there are elements in CSIS and in the right wing that think that Canada is not belligerent enough against uh, the Chinese. And I'm not going to support the the Chinese government. It's a capitalist government. It's uh, it's headed by a communist party, but it's a capitalist government. Uh, So I'm not going to support them. But I'm much more concerned about CSIS manipulation of Canadian politics then I am concerned about Chinese. Uh, you know, solidarity with the Tibetan community, of course, but uh, there's we've got yeah we've got to realise that Csis is not friendly to the working class. Uh, in fact, was spying uh, on well, the precursor to Csis was spying on Tommy Douglas, and they still won't release the files. And are organised to uh, sort of manipulate trade unions in Canada. So that that's my bigger concern and and they and they're really trying to sort of move public opinion.
1: Um, you're listening to Alex Grant, uh, uh, who is the editor of Fight Back. You're listening to the Radical Reverend show Sherry De Novo here. As per always, very live uh, at CIUT mm-hmm. 89.5 FM. And uh, we now have Gary Kinsman on the line. I invited Gary on the show today. Uh, Gary's a member of No Pride and Policing Coalition. Uh, he's co-author of a couple of books you may have heard of, uh, primarily one that I highly recommend. The Regulation of Desire, uh, which is third edition, is being published by Concordia University this coming fall, but also the Canadian Canadian War on Queers. Um, Gary, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show.
0: Hi, Sherry. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right, all things considered. Okay, so you put out a little newsletter called the Anti-69 News. Do you want to just explain what Anti-69 is about for listeners?
0: Yes. Uh, Anti-69 was um, organizing that we did largely in 2019 when the Canadian government was interested in Celebrating the 1969 Criminal Code reforms anniversary, and we adopted a much more critical approach to that. And what we put out yesterday um, in Anti-69 News was a, a two different statements that have been put out around the new expungement um, legislation, the alterations to it uh, that have now been put forward. I, explain from, that.
1: Explain that for for a minute. Okay. Yeah.
0: So mm-hmm. people will probably remember that in 2017, the uh, Trudeau government announced an apology to gays and lesbians and queer and trans people more generally for the massive purge campaigns, the massive national security purge campaigns against us that took place from the late 50s into the 1990s. Um, There were a number of different components to this so-called apology. One was just a statement that Justin Trudeau said in the House of Commons. Another one was the class action settlement with people who had actually been purged. But the third element was this expungement legislation, which meant that if you had been convicted of historically unjust offenses, that you could actually apply to the parole board to get them deleted or destroyed. Okay, so what's interesting is that in 2018, when this legislation was adopted, it included very few of the offences that actually have ever been used um, against consensual sex of a queer character. In 2019, we actually got them to abolish the body house laws, and we were hoping that they would then be added into the expungement legislation, but we had to wait till 2023 for them to announce their intention to do that. The problem with what they're now proposing to do Around the body house legislation is to only include the acts of indecency components of it, which were abolished um, in uh, 2019, um, but not the, the parts of it that were abolished in 2013, which had to do with sex work and acts of prostitution. So they're trying to deliberately exclude sex workers from this expungement legislation. Uh, another, and that's the major problem that we were pointing out. But another major problem is, of course, they only cover acts of indecency if they have occurred within the walls of a body house, that is, basically within a bathhouse, in terms of the offences that have been uh, launched against men who have sex with men. Um, What this means is that the vast majority of people who get charged with indecent acts are actually charged for consensual acts done as much as possible in private, not to bother other people in parks or in public washrooms. And those people cannot get their historically unjust convictions expunged through this legislation.
1: Which so is. That, I uh,
0: think that provides some good background for understanding yeah. what's going on right now.
1: Thanks, Gary. Um, and, and I also think of the Pussy Palace raid here, where women were involved, and that was. Uh, and I assume those women aren't going to get anything expunged either
0: Uh, Uh, they were they were all charged under liquor legislation if my memory is correct Um, and they they refused the apology the police tried to give to them so there's continuing uh, controversies around that and people are probably aware that the current toronto chief of police was uh, intimately involved quite centrally involved in the pussy palace raid
1: Yeah, which is why um, uh, so many in the 2 LGBTQ plus community opposed his appointment. Well, and many other things about the police. For sure, uh, about many other things. Um, uh, talk to you about the blood ban. Where's that all at? Okay, so
0: the the blood ban um, is the ban. Just for your for your listeners, the the ban that was enacted a long time ago to try to prevent. At one point, it was Haitians, gay men, and other people from being able to donate blood because it was presumed that it was HIV-infected. There were lots of problems with this approach. It organized racism against the Haitian community, discrimination against men who had sex with men. Um, What's happened more recently is the blood ban. There was a blood ban against people from Africa giving blood. They've now officially got rid of that but never made an apology to the type of anti-Black racism that has existed in the and the blood donation system has never been adequately addressed but what they have said and this is actually quite incorrect they have said that the blood ban against men who have sex with men has been abolished this is not at all the case um if you engage in anal sex acts, you are still prohibited from donating blood so most queer and trans people still cannot uh freely donate blood in the canadian to canadian blood services so the liberal government is actually creating quite a mythology here, and some of the mainstream white LGBT groups are creating quite a mythology here, saying that the blood ban is over when, for most people, it actually isn't. And, of course, trans people still can't donate blood. Sex workers still can't, cannot donate blood. There's lots of other people who are still banned from being able to donate blood.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a really important <laughs> Point to make. And uh, I mean, without getting into the nitty uh, details here, um, uh, I mean, as if heterosexuals don't have sex like that, too. (laughs) Well, just saying. (laughs) Yes,
0: and I mean, the only sex related question that people are asked is about anal sex. They're not asked any other question relating to their sexual practices. And of course, as you've just pointed out, many heterosexual people engage in unsafe sex practices, right? And those people. Are not at all in any way interfered with by the blood donation system as it's currently set up. It's all presumed to be focused on the problem being men, in particular, who engage in anal sex. Act.
1: Well, thank you for that update, Gary, and uh, and we'll we'll keep touching base about other developments politically in the in the queer community as well. So, thanks for the work you do. Keep on doing it.
0: And I hope you keep on doing all the wonderful work that you're doing as well. So <laughs> Thanks, Gary. Have a good rest of the day.
1: Yeah, you too. Okay. Right. So um, just a little update there on uh, from Left Left or Leftist, uh, show here on the Radical Reverend Show about what's happening in queer politics. So don't believe everything you read, folks, out there in, in the paper. Um, the Liberal government and Liberals just generally have been very, very active around um they seem to be very, very active around 2SLGBTQ-plus issues, and yet the truth is somewhere different. Um, you've heard about the blood ban? Yep, still there. Um, you've heard about the expunging of records? Yep, still not happening. Um, and uh, And even more so, as we speak over at Queen's Park, they're talking about sex reassignment surgery, Yep, still not covered, which is in direct contradiction to Toby's law, which was a law I and other activists brought in, um, which says that you can't discriminate against discriminate against trans um, and non-binary folk, and of course they are. So, so a, a lot of this is about enforcement, and a lot of it is about spin. It's called pink washing. Yep, <laughs> it's called pink washing. Uh, Alex, we just have about five minutes left on the, uh, on the show. Um, what I, I guess the way we should wrap up with this is, is you know. It's all the bad news, right? About what's going on. What is to prevent someone, especially, and I hear this often from younger people, from a kind of doomerism, kind of you know thinking, oh, you know, uh, you know, the world's going to end. Um, the climate crisis already out beyond our control. Um, you know, capitalism going to be capitalism till kills the last single one of us. Um, what do you say to that?
3: The the only solution to Doomerism and, th- and this lack of hope that uh, young people feel, and, and it's, a, it's a significant issue, uh, I'm, is organising, is enthusiasm and confidence. You, like, the left ends up being so miserable. Uh, actually, I heard this report recently about uh, a meeting of the left in Vancouver, and, and the report just said, and, and many of the attendees were struggling with pessimism and, and lack of hope. And, and really, you have to understand, look, I, I'm i very confident, and I think that's a, that is a very important part of, in organizing, uh, but because I'm a, an extreme pessimist about capitalism, you have to, if you look at this system, it cannot continue like this, it cannot continue like this, and I'm people eventually do rise up. They are, they are rising up in many countries. There's a strike wave right now in Britain. Uh, there's been sort of revolutionary movements all over the place. Canada's a bit delayed. Absolutely. Canada's a bit delayed. But these countries show us our future. And Macron b- and France. Yes, there's future. a massive mm-hmm. strike wave. Mm-hmm. Paris is on fire as we mm-hmm. speak. Right, It does happen. And... But you've got to be confidently put forward a new society, be confidently socialist, unapologetically socialist. I, I always am. And while being realistic, yes, it doesn't happen overnight. And you've got to organize. As I think a lot of the people who are lacking confidence have also abandoned organizing. And organizing is really hard. It's really hard. Like I moved to Toronto in end of 2004 and... Uh, when I moved here, I had two comrades, and now, yeah, fight back, uh, largest group on the left, uh, on the far left at least, and and so it's consistent, confident, organizing, and a belief in a new society, and then eventually, people will come on board and show
1: it's possible. And uh, just out there, if you're listening in, yeah, don't be depressed. Um You know, get active. Get active. And particularly to uh, union leaders out there, um, listen to your rank and file. People are really suffering. And uh, isn't it time for a general strike about the privatization of healthcare? Just saying, just saying, putting that out there just for a second. Um, Love to hear from you. Again, thanks to everyone who makes this show possible and uh, always interested in what you have to say. Until next time on the Radical Reference Show.
4: Oh, so high? Ooh, Lord, my trouble so hard, don't abide in no matter trouble for God, don't nobody know my trouble for God. Ooh line, trouble so hard Ooh Lion trouble so hard Don't abide in no